Force field is at 25% strength. Booster ignition is go. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning Layer 1s to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Auto sequence start in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Before we jump in, we want to thank Kava for making this episode possible. Kava is a cross-chain DeFi platform that gives you the ability to earn more by connecting the world's largest cryptocurrencies, ecosystems, and financial applications in one safe and seamless integration. We're excited for the upcoming launch of the Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Swap will join the Kava protocol and Hard protocol as the next application built on the Kava platform. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Delphi podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures. I'm really excited to have on the first guest for our Delphi VC crypto series, Arthur of Defiance Capital. Arthur, how's it going? I'm great. Thanks for having me uh, on top. Uh, it's been a pleasure and it's one of my favorite podcast series as well. Awesome. No, I appreciate the kind words. Arthur, let's dive right in. Um, tell me a bit about yourself and your firm. I'm Arthur, the founder of Defiance Capital. Defiance Capital is a DeFi-focused crypto fund that combines fundamental research and an active involvement approach. There's a tagline we like to use is heavily inspired by X and Z, which is we think that DeFi will eat traditional finance for the next te- decade. So, yeah. That's awesome. And how long has the fund been around? How many deals have you done at a high level? Focus on tokens or equities? Or yeah. The fund has been around for close to a year. We generally focus on token deal, but we do make a pure equity investment from time to time as well. Um, before the fund is formed, I've been uh, investing in the crypto space uh, for around two years. Yeah, so my uh, crypto investment experience has been slightly more than three years. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I've seen your ascent and it's been absolutely incredible. So let's start at the beginning. I mean, how do you walk the line of filtering plays given the sheer number of opportunities in crypto? Like, you know, how do you decide what to pass on? How do you spend, decide what to spend time on? Um, I think everybody assumes like VCs just sit there all day and you know, spend the time in their top plays, but it's really not the case. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Yeah. So I think, uh, first of all, is to really do determine our circle of competence. I think there's a reason we focus on the DeFi because we know that in this area, we do have an age and we know how to evaluate uh, projects in this space. Um, so actually, like, uh, I think we are quite, I think one year ago, it's actually quite rare, but we actually do not really make any layer one investment. I think like Polkadot was one of the most popular investment by all the crypto funds. We actually have no dot position. Even for like other layer one, like AVAX, uh, Solana, we actually also don't have zero position in all of them. So because we think that layer one uh, is definitely one of the biggest sector in the space, but um, it is quite hard to evaluate what is the fair value range because 
there's no consensus. I mean, except for Bitcoin money, where there's a lot more data, you can draw some uh, framework to analyze that. For all these layer ones, it's actually quite difficult. And some of them can be worth like 10 billion without any actual usage. Like uh, actually Cardano is like 30 billion, right? <laughs> and then you have some that's like 1 billion. And they actually, you look at the active user number, they actually have the same as Cardano. So you actually couldn't really understand why. It's really about the hype and the meme. So I think that is a bit difficult. Um, so that's why we will focus on DeFi, focus on your circle of competence. And then within DeFi, we also look at um, what's happening in the market. You can draw some reference. Like um, I think for the first phase, we think that the foundation need to be built, which is why we focus heavily on uh, DEXs and also lending and borrowing. Because I think that when you look at finance from a first principle point of view, the foundation will always need to be built first. So I think that, um, and you uh, DEXs is not something new as well. Like, uh, People have been building them since 2017. And then you also gradually see the volume climbing throughout the bear market. So I think that as a result, we think that um, DEX is the product market fit is proven, but there's still a lot of innovation. So this is an area that we've been focusing on. And lending and borrowing is just a key pillar. Like uh, the reference also like from success of BlockFi, Celsius, like there is clearly a lot of demand for crypto lending and borrowing services. So these two segment of DeFi has been what uh, we focus on a lot for the last larger part of the last uh, 12 months. And then we look at uh, what is the next space that is going to likely be built and get adopted. And our conclusion is uh, derivative. So this is where we've been making a fair amount of investment as well. So, so I think this kind of narrowed down uh, the focus. So I think we do look at other verticals as well because there are some great founders that always surprise you. Uh, but I think those with like the team and the whole like you need a lot more stars to be aligned for us to be uh, more confident in making investment outside of the core uh, segment we are we are focusing on, and I think that after spending some time in the space, you kind of uh, develop some heuristic as well to help you uh, spend a better time uh, to filter out something that's not even worth looking. So I think I don't want to I think core approach does work. Um, but I think a lot of time, a very resourceful team and founder will know how to land a warm introduction. And that, although I don't like it as when I was entrepreneur, I think that it is much more helpful uh, having a warm intro because that gives some uh, context on your uh, your background and all this thing. And I'm much more likely to spend time looking at it as well. So uh, the resourcefulness of the team and the way they've been pitching the product, I think an experienced a team really know how to position themselves and they know what is happening as well. Like you can see some team, right? They come and pitch, oh, this is like a 10, like $1 trillion market. And we are doing this, 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 this. But actually all of the point they have mentioned has already been done by them team, but they are not even aware. So this is a very clear pass because they are not even aware of what is happening in the market. So, and sometimes you look at, uh, they say, oh, we already have other investors involved. And I don't want to put the, I don't want to name the funds out there, but there are some funds where you look at it's involved, you know that they're not the real long-term crypto investment funds. So you tend to avoid this. So I think generally this is uh, how do you uh, screen the number of opportunities in crypto. And also uh, last but not least, uh, you build a very uh, good network of other crypto investors you can exchange your opinion is. I think this one takes time, but I think if you uh, make yourself known in the space and you contribute to the discussion, be it on Twitter or like some Telegram group, I think sooner or later you build your own network and you just 
uh, you share deal flow and you also get share some deal flow by other crypto investors in the space as well. That's a, it's a phenomenal answer. I totally agree in the warm intros as kind of a first filter. Um, that's a really good point. My, my follow-up question though is like, where do you exactly draw the line, right? Because let's take an example. Let's say that you're not focused on NFTs. You're going to automatically pass on these deals, maybe becomes a mega market, then you're behind. Where do you draw the line? Where do you, you know, start to learn? Because there's some things where, you know, just totally, you know, excluding all layer ones, to your point, could be great because you have way more time to spend on DeFi, but you might miss Terra. You might miss Polkadot. How do you draw the line on new areas to investigate? Yeah, I think you just have to accept that uh, there will be something, there will be some play that you miss. I think as an investor, I don't think any investor can catch all the major play in the market. Uh, there's probably one or two traders that can do that. But I mean, that's not the way we really um, manage, approach the market. So I think we just have to accept that there are some layer one play uh, that we will miss. Like I think this year actually have been pretty great year for layer one. I think most layer one actually outperformed DeFi if you use like a 1st of January, 2021 as a starting point, uh, Foundcoin, Polkadot, Solana did very well. Um, yeah, I think if you look at that, you can consider that as a miss for us, but we think that it's just not within our circle of competence. So it's, we, are, we are fine to accept that. But I think that's say um, NFT, we do have uh, some pretty successful investment. I think both uh, us and you guys are one of the earliest backer of Axie Infinity. And, it was one of the best performing investment for us this year as well. I think that what really attracts us is because all star align, right? Like uh, when you look at crypto, community is always one of the most important factors. I think even during the bear market, the team has been very focused on building a community, a very organic, uh, grassroots-based community, and just steadily grown from there. And the active user number wasn't as great as currently. Like right now they have 500,000 daily active users. But back then, they have like 10,000. And then within a month, you see them go to 12,000, 13,000. It's always like organic, steady growth. And I think I was always very, being a casual gamer myself, I was always very bullish on uh, combining some of the NFT element with games and also making it a collectible. So I think there's always a lot of potential there. And I like the way the team is approaching it. Yeah, so I think this is why I think the all stars are aligned. The valuation back then was fair, and I can see the growth. It's just the market wasn't think that this will not be a very big thing. But I mean, that's where you uh, you get the best risk reward, right? Another uh, NFT investment where we did very well is uh, Mintable. So it's a pure equity play. They raised a recent round of seventy five million valuation. Um, it's one of the NFT minting and uh, marketplace platform. I think this is. Uh, I think there's some luck element because the founder Zach is based in Singapore, and I know them for a while. And then, yeah, I always know what he's building on. So I think yeah, that's a good thing. Build your connection with the founders and the entrepreneur, even when you are not ready to invest that time. I think sometimes it pays a lot of good dividends. But how do you decide the time? I, I don't have a perfect answer for that. I think everyone just need to decide how much time they dedicate into like building their entrepreneur network as well. How aggressive are you with those founders? Like the ones that aren't raising, you're extremely interested in what they're building. Do you go out of your way to convince them to raise? Or are you more of the opinion that you should follow, help out, and then when they eventually do raise, get involved as much as you can? I would say on a scale of one to 10, I'm probably on a six, uh, not the most aggressive kind because I, I want the team to have a very clear idea how are they going to spend the money. 
I think actually a lot of time when you force the team to race, they, they're not really sure how to uh, utilize those capital effectively. So I, I'll, I think, have a conversation with the team first. Like, let's say uh, if you can raise this, how are you going to expand it? Like expand your company or your protocol? Who are you going to hire? What's your growth direction is going to be? Yeah, so I think we are not the most aggressive, but I think sometimes we will take an initiative to say that, you know, I think in this environment, you can raise and we, we can definitely help in that regards. Just switching gears a bit, what do you think are the biggest differences between traditional venture investing and, you know, VC and crypto? I mean, obviously the community side takes a big part. You know, you're not exactly just, you know, a bunch of VCs taking down rounds. It's VCs, the community, angels, value-add investors, strategics, and there has to be a good portion of the tokens for the community. How do you weigh the difference, I guess, between traditional VC and crypto VC? And then as a secondary question, what do you think is a good number for the community involvement here? I know it's kind of hard to answer vaguely, but it'd be interesting to get your take there. Yeah, I think the biggest difference is uh, the mindset is actually quite different. Uh, I do think that the traditional VC has been learning as well. I think uh, it used to be, I think that uh, traditional VC that uh, there was a lot of famous story like, like Sequatic took the entire round on WhatsApp and then they, they went out extremely well for them. But I think in a, and so they always come from a point that uh, if we see something have a lot of potential, we believe in, we want to take the entire round and usually in a traditional VC, an entire round means like around at least 15 to 20% of the company for each stage. So if they, let's say both rounds are done by one VC, they probably own close to 40% of the firm. Uh, and they usually have at least one or two board seat uh, out of like say four or three. So they, they can actually kick out the, the founder uh, after two rounds of investing uh, if they're the sole investor. This is a lot less common uh, in crypto. I, I actually do not know any crypto protocol where the team are being removed by the crypto VC, except for Tezos. There's probably some conflict there, but I, I'm not, I didn't follow up in the end. But it was quite messy. It's an old age story. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think the power of the team and the founder is definitely a lot stronger. So I think it probably take time to evolve to tilt the balance slightly back to the investor side. But I think it's always a marketing, right? Because right now it's a lot harder to demand all this thing. I think there are some uh, new way to structure around where you are, have equity plus token warrant. And then I think mostly the value team are still a lot more of the value team use this kind of structure where you have equity and the investors still have a bot seat, then you have a token warrant. But I think for the other international team, uh, usually like you do a pure staff deal, so you do not have a bot seat. So I think that's kind of the mentality. You know that you uh, it's a lot less likely you can be hostile. Although I do think this can be a value strategy because sometimes the team are just not the, the, the best fit to lead the protocol or the project forward and you want to install a new team. But I think it's just due to the way the context and the circumstances, a lot harder to do it in crypto. It's just a reality we have to accept. And I think second thing is, uh, I I think sometimes there are some crypto funds that uh, have a lot of value to add and they can cover most of most aspects of the other funds. But I think more there's actually more of the case that uh, this is not true, where you actually benefit from having a few, at least a few other investor on board as well to help in various aspects. So I think the key is to, is this, there's no formula around it. Like you want to get to the sweet spot that you have a few backer that all of them have sufficient skin in the game to really help you out, but not too much of a party round where everyone put in 100,000 or 200,000 and their fund is a huge and then 
you're just way too insignificant for their fund to even bother spending any resources to help you down the road. Um, so I think usually, let's say you're raising a seed round that's below 3 million. I think not more than five good investors, um, like good funds, crypto, crypto funds. And then you probably have another few, three or five angels. I think that is a good number to have. Like if you have too much, and you dilute the round too much, I think people are just not incentivized to help. So I think that's generally how I do it. Like you want to find the right number, not too much of a party round, but you get a few funds that add value in a very different perspective. I'm totally with you there. I think the two extremes don't make sense. Like having a fund take a whole round or having you know a party round with 100 or 200 people and it just doesn't make sense. I agree with you having a select group of people who are incentivized, but also add value in different ways where the communication is real makes a lot of sense. My follow-up question for you is just on the community side. Like, how do you, what do you think the best way is for a project that you're investing in to both, one, incentivize the community with their token? I mean, the goal is to make people rich. Axie is a good example you brought up, but also to keep them engaged in ways where, you know, if they want to, say, remove the founders, the community has that power, has that structure. Like, what is the best way to get the community involved from a token allocation perspective? but also from a game theory perspective on, you know, for different projects. Yeah. I think, I think it depends on the, on the life cycle of the protocol. I actually think it's fine at the earlier stage for the protocol ownership to be slightly concentrated. Um, I think uh, the, the investor can probably own between five to up to the max of like 20%. I think that's probably the highest it should go. And then the team should own around at least like 10 to up to 25%. And then the protocol treasury can own another 10 to 15%. And then you allocate 50% for the community. And then among the, among the 50% for the community, how do you get into the hand? I mean, the very popular methods right now are liquidity mining. Although I do think um, unfortunate uh, historical situation is actually so-called a public sale. Actually, I think it's sometimes it's a good way to distribute a token to the community that value it the most. Uh, I think there's a lot of benefit to liquidity mining. I'm a big champion of it, but uh, a, a poorly designed uh, incentive or liquidity mining program actually end up leading the token being more concentrated <laughs> because those people with the most amount of capital and resources will just go and farm it and they'll end up owning more of the token as well. So I think it's, it's really important uh, how do they design the incentivization uh, progress process. So yeah, I think, and then among the 50%, yeah, I, I think that if it's possible, I think around five to 10% of it can still be done through public sale. If you can't get a coin list, I think the most popular way is to, is to get on various of these uh, auction and ideal platform. So Sushi have conducted, I think three or four of their launch pad. I think it went fairly okay. You also have the very popular balancer liquidity bootstrapping pool as well. I think that has been a very big success because it solved the front-running issue. Like the bot can't get in and just take out all the token allocation and pump the price up immediately. Uh, so I think these two are the most popular method right now. There's obviously other auction platform, but yeah, I think this uh, I think balancer is the most popular one, followed by others. I think sushi is gaining some traction as well. That's awesome. And Arthur, just switching gears a bit, I want to talk a bit about founders. Um, I'm a huge believer in the founding teams. A lot of the stuff that you know we personally invest in, you know, we go to great lengths to diligence on the technical side, on the smart contract side, product market fit, strategy, et cetera. 
but crypto moves so fast that you're really taking bets on founders, right? Like these are the guys that are going to be here full time, 18 hours a day, 24 hours a day, navigating it. How do you size up founders? How do you get comfortable with investing in them? And it would be really helpful to know any red flags that turn you off from investing in a founder. Uh, I'm probably going to get some hate for saying that, but um, I think, first of all, I think that the, I believe that the number of founders that can be multitasking is extremely limited. So I have a huge preference for founders who are really focused on one protocol or company or project they're working at one point of time. Because I think that, uh, especially given the pace of crypto, managing one is tough enough. Managing more than one, two or three, is just literally going to lead to a split in resources and attention. And I think it's also pretty bad for the mental well-being of the founding team as well. It's really good for anyone involved. Yeah. So I would really prefer to be just focusing on one project because that's where you dedicate the dedicate 100% of your attention is. And I kind of want to see that the, the founder and the team to really believe in it and to find a way to just uh, turn it around. I think when you have enough conversation, be it on a verbal or like on a audio approach, like you can sense like the, how much fire the team has in it. I mean, I there might be some guy that are like better at faking it, but I think when you have a few interactions, you kind of can see like the, the passion they have, you know, how much energy they're devoting. And sometimes it like, uh, it's something that they went above and beyond. I think right now when the project get bigger, it's a bit harder, but I think generally in the early stage, like the, the very good founder, they are hyper-focused on getting the product feedback from the community. They will spend a lot of time just to get the product feedback and sometimes just doing something that they should not be doing, let's say doing some small customer support. Um, I'm not saying all of them should do that. Uh, they are def- usually much better tasks for them to focus on, but it's just that they are so focused on the, the product and the user feedback, they'll inevitably spend more time on the community and understand what the, what the user really want. So they'll, they'll spend a lot of time finding a product, talking to the community, and writes a lot to really and understand the space. They just you just see that the passion they have for the project is very different. And yeah, so I think as a result, uh, I like a very highly focused founder and they have a lot of passion, energy. Um, and to a certain extent, I like when the founder is uh, have so-called have their stick on the line. Like the success of this protocol will really affect how successful he or she will get as well. So I think it's just like a, it's just a very natural thing like uh, where people get a lot more successful and wealthy. They, they might still have the passion, but uh, it's a lot le- less likely to affect his fortune, right? So he might just, you know, not give 100% energy. I think it's just a very natural for humans. So, but as an investor, I just like to invest in the founder that has a lot more energy and focus. Uh, yeah. Arthur, you bring up a good point there that the success of the project would change their life. Would that negate you from investing in a project where the founder is already wildly successful and say wealthy? Uh, it will not because I do think there are some people who just really enjoy starting new companies or projects and just uh, making it big. I think that's what uh, like there's quite a few serial entrepreneurs in the space. But I think that um, I would really need to dig deeper on their motivation and just uh, and do some follow-up observation on how much energy are they dedicating on this compared to the previous project? I think sometimes you can see it. Yeah. And what's your take on 
let's say you invest in a founder you love, and one of your concerns is that they start multiple things, their time is fractured. I totally agree with you. But what happens when you invest in a founder and then they go and start multiple things? Do you size down your investment? Do you not follow on? Do you not spend as much time? Do you give them advice? What do you do then? I will really put a lot of time to observe the traction of the project or investment we did and then see that uh, how is the founder allocating the time. I mean, I don't rule out exceptions, um, but uh, I think it's, it's just difficult. So that's why we, we just pay a lot of attention to see if uh, the the stuff we invest are being affected or not. I think if it's is being affected, I think we, yeah, we might uh, make some uh, changes to our allocation yep. and yeah, our, our stake. And do you have a concern or a preference on anonymous founders? Like, will, will you invest in anonymous or pseudonymous founders? Yes, I think we invested in an anonymous uh, or pseudonymous uh, founder before. I think that it's, it's really context-dependent and on a case-by-case basis because I think that you have, I think, a few fairly successful anonymous founders in the space as well. I think Alchemix is, uh, is quite successful and there's a few others as well. But I think that uh, there's definitely a lot more due diligence needed and you need to know that how can you protect yourself against the founder just, go, let's say, going missing. Yeah, so I, I think that we just need to be a lot more careful on uh, how we can protect against the, you know, the founder just go MIA and just not doing anything. Yeah, so I, I think, but some, yeah, sometimes, I mean, there are some anonymous that despite being anonymous, they spend a lot of time in the community, they build out their profile, for like a few years. So the chances of them, like you, you can know them a lot better, although they're anonymous, like by how they portray themselves in various platforms and their contribution record and probably just their GitHub profile. So uh, I think this inspires a lot of confidence. But if it's just come out of nowhere and, you know, just or suddenly put a lot of uh, ambitious claim, yeah, I think these are a lot less likely for us to invest in. If you had two investments, let's say both are a million dollars and one's a known founder and one's an anonymous founder, and you you know them just as well in your mind, would you size up the known founder more than the anonymous founder or would you keep those checks equal? In that case, the founder factor would not affect us the most. It's probably the other, other factors of the protocol that will affect our investment size the most. That makes sense. And I mean, just on deal terms, how aggressive are you at negotiating the difference in valuations? I mean, are you one to say, hey, you know what? Don't do this at 60 mil. I'll invest at 40 or 50. Because obviously on the exit, the initial multiple makes a big difference on, on how much your exit multiple is. I hope I can be more aggressive. <laughs> but the, the reality is it's really a founder's market for the last three to six months. So uh, we usually try to talk them to a more sensible level if they went ridiculous. Um, I think that we'll, we'll go quite uh, hard on negotiating it down or like to a more sensible level if we decided to lead. If we're just participating, yeah, I, I think that yeah, our we, we just don't negotiate that hard because I think that when a lot of other funds have committed on the same valuation and then, yeah, the, it, your bargaining power is just not that strong as well. I, I Yeah. So I think just a product of the bull market, the the it's really the balance of power is really on the founders and the team side uh, when it comes to negotiating valuation. Yeah, and, no, and unless yeah. in some cases, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm with you. It's it's hard when a lot of people get involved and they start to, you know, the teams get credit and then it's just hard to make a decision there. And just circling back a bit, can you give me an example of 
one of your favorite founders in crypto, like what's the passion that they showed you that just led you to want to write a check on the first call? Do you want to talk more about like the early stage founder or like the, 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 the growth stage kind of founders? Because I do think there are some differences as well. No, that's a good point. Um, I'll let you take it whichever way you want. Okay. I think, I think uh, it's like some of my favorite founders uh, are Stani uh, and Kane. I think right now it seems very obvious, right? Because you look at the success of this protocol. Yeah, but I think back then when I made that investment, it wasn't obvious. So so I'll probably wind back the history a little bit. Uh, so I think, okay, let's just start for Kane. So when I invested in 2018, it was a worse, like the bear market. And so how do I make the conviction? Because I spent actually two months in the community, just start talking, poking around, asking a lot of questions. And... The, the, the team actually managed to respond. And I think at the initial stage, my question wasn't the most friendly, like, because I really want to dig deeper on the design and poke hole, like, is this design like uh, bulletproof? So, but the team just has a patient answer. And, that, and the fact is that time, the market wasn't in the best condition. The founder could have just don't, doesn't give a damn because this guy asked a lot of questions, but it doesn't matter anyway. They probably want to look for funds that will invest and what, this is just a retail. So the fact that the founders manage to look at this and just still answer the questions uh, in regards to what market conditions shows a lot. And uh, subsequently, uh, throughout the tough condition, the team never give up. So I think this is something you need more time to assess. Yeah, the team just have the grit and tenacity to persist through a tough market condition. Yeah, and then this is where I keep sizing up my investment as well. And then for Stani, it's the same story. Uh, I made investment in Aave a little bit later. I think actually around early 2020. But uh, I know Eveland has been around since 2017 as well. So it's the same perfect example of like two plus year of brutal bear market. Uh, the community have just given up. Everyone has sold their token, but the team has not still iterating on their product and pivot until they found a way out. And then uh, when, when and I met Stani and the team, I think at uh, 2019, you can still see the fire in them. They still have the passion for the product they're building, although the market has not fully recovered by that point. And I think that that's a great example of like the, the founder that just have to fire in them regardless of the market condition, like, and then just keep building and, uh, and find a way out. So I think, yeah, these two are my favorite founder. I think you can see that throughout the growth, like both uh, Synthetics and Aave has become a multi-billion protocol. But I think you can still see the team has a, a lot of fire and the focus on building the product. You can see them from the social media and for their innovation and for the idea they are putting out in the community. So they still have, uh, they still want to grow the protocol to the next level. Um, and But for some, you you can see that founder is, I don't want to put a name out there, but you can see them being a little bit more relaxed and seems to be focusing a lot more on their other initiative as well. Yeah. It's a good, it's a great answer about, you know, building confidence during a bear market, seeing founders continue to build, seeing that passion. I, I totally agree with you. 2018 was not an easy time to invest. And let, let's talk about the end of your example there. Like, let's say, you know, now Aave Aesthetics are major protocols. Kane has obviously started to step back a bit, let the community take over. That's my understanding. How do you think about founders giving up control to the community? Because I don't think we've actually really seen it happen yet, other than, let's say, Bitcoin or Satoshi gone, right? Like, how do you envision founders going away while you maintain your conviction in the project and the community and this actually working out? Yeah, the, I, I think that before the founder decided to, let's say, uh, take a more hands-off approach, uh, 
he need to cultivate a very knowledgeable and a strong community that can partially uh, take over his task. It doesn't have to be one person. It can be a group of people uh, or it can be part of the other team member that, you know, take a more like a leading role in the team where the founder take a hands-off approach. I think that's fine. But I think that the, the team or the founder have to ensure that uh, they have managed to cultivate that so that um, when he step back, there, there isn't a vacuum. So uh, I think uh, I think that the fact is, uh, the, I mean, the synthetics put on the blog post, Kane decided to come back and take a more active role in the council, prove that, uh, I mean, it, it's actually much harder than a lot of people imagine. I think synthetics already have a very strong community, but it's still hard for that for, for a leading figure to come up uh, because when you get very decentralized, people usually want to avoid a situation where there's one guy that's the boss and ordering people around. But I think sometimes you need a guy that's a key coordination where when it comes to some important decision, he can place a lot more influence and move it forward instead of the thing uh, get stuck in a deadlock. So yeah, I think it's a very tricky. You just need to build the, the foundation. So it's, it's a very classic question of, like, let's say you're a family business, the patriarch is 80 years old, he's going to retire. How does he handle over? Let's say his son is not interested in the business. And or what's the best way to handle over, right? So I think it's a classic management question as well. So I think crypto is just that you there's a potential of involving the community, um, but you need to ensure the community is ready as well. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. I think it's way harder than people think, but I think eventually um, it'll get done. And I guess just switching back away from founders for a bit, just back to your fund and sizing up investments and stuff like that, because working with founders gets you the conviction to invest. What are your thoughts on concentration versus diversification? And it would be helpful if you could differentiate between you at the fund level and I guess you at a personal PA, you know, personal account level. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I definitely advocate for uh, a more concentrated approach, but uh, there is a threshold to that. Uh, I think that the key to decide that um, how concentrated you can be is one of the investment, let's say it go down by 80% or let's say zero. I, I think, okay, depends on how mature this protocol is. So for us, we are comfortable having a, like a slightly higher percentage, let's say up to 30% in one DeFi protocol, only where this DeFi protocol have a very proven product market fit, it's a, a very mature stage like Aave, and it's already have a lot of liquidity that we know that we can actually increase or reduce our size uh, when we need to, uh, not for very early stage protocol. So like we will not allow some very early stage illiquid stuff to be 20% or 30% of our fund. So, so I think you have to make sure that if one of them go down like 80 to 90%, your fund will still go out fine. So I think when, so I think this is the max, the highest concentration you can go for one investment where if this one go down significantly, 80, 80%, your fund will still, still be fine. Uh, I think that's the highest concentration you can do. So in that case, I think um, it depends on the fund size as well. I think if you are, let's say, a low egg figure fund, you can be fairly concentrated of, let's say, only having 10 names. I actually think that is an okay way to play the market. Because what I realized in the market right now, unless you're trading, let's say from a more medium to long-term investment approach, when the market goes up, you see a lot more divergence in uh, outperformance. Um, like you, let's say uh, Q1, there's a few that really outperform. Uh, let's say Binance Smart Chain, the pan pancake shop did very well. It did 2,000%. Um, Dodo did very well as well. 
And I think uh, Ave and uh, Sushi did well and then it corrected down a bit. But the difference is huge. Right? I mean, like, I think Pet King Swap did 2,000% and uh, Ave did 3-400%. Sushi did 5-600%. And then uh, there's a few other that did more than 1,000%. But actually, they are. I don't want to put a name out there, but there's some DeFi protocol or some other project they only did like 50 or 100%. So you see a lot of divergence uh, for Q1 actually this year, even though it's a crazy bull market out there. But when the market corrects, the correction go to one. So everyone just correct down 60% at the same time anyway. So when you, when you look at a correction, it's not much difference. <laughs> There's the difference between a 60% correction and an 80% correction. You obviously want to avoid an 80% correction one. But yeah, so I think we do have one that corrected 80% from the peak, which is alpha. But also alpha did very well during Q1 as well. So I think that's uh I think I think that's why it makes sense to be fairly concentrated because you get the the dispersion of return when it's going up. But when going down, it's all the same anyway. So right now, there's not enough crypto that is negatively correlated with the market. Let's say if the market is going down, only stablecoin is staying firm, right? Everyone else is dropping. I mean, Bitcoin dropped the least, that's all. So I think that's why I think it makes sense to be fairly concentrated to the level that you will not uh, damage your fund if one of them go to zero. Yeah. I really like your take. I mean, might as well stay concentrated because you get the most on the way up and it's all the same on the way down. It's actually a, it's a cool way to think about it. And yeah. the, the other question for you there is when you're looking at deals and you're investigating, like early on, you said synthetics, you were pretty you know upfront with your questions. When you approach a team, first call, second call, third call, you're reading the stuff, you're on the chats, Discord, how skeptical are you? How critical are you? Do you try and be their friend? Like, how do you go about getting info, but also being critical, poking holes, but also showing interest? How do you do that? Yeah, I, I think it's a lot of the way, just how you communicate. Uh, I think that a lot of time, the team will also understand as a fund, we need to do our due diligence. I think it's just key to, when you ask a question, is like, you don't want to make it seem like the other project is superior to what they are building. You're just really trying to understand and ask it from a, like an objective manner, like how do you going to solve this if, you know, if this happens? So I think that most of the team, they, they understand this and yeah. And I think that I think how deep we go is also, as much as I dislike saying this, it depends on the market condition as well <laughs> because in the bull market, you just, you just have very, a lot limited time and I think um, there's also some use cases where you have to take a leap of faith as well. So I think this is also where we start making uh, a little bit more venture bet because in, in our view, venture bet uh, also a lot of time, the concept is a lot less proven. So you have to take some leap of faith and to trust the founder capability of building it. So I actually think there are some use cases in DeFi right now that although there's actually around more than five teams, they're already working on it. They all have raised a decent amount. I think the use case is actually not proven yet. <laughs> I might get a lot of hate for saying the use cases, but because we, ourselves, we also have made the investment because we think that it's, it's okay to take a leap of faith, but I think the use case is actually not proven yet. So yeah, so in in this case where we think the use case is not proven, we will be uh, a lot more skeptical and ask a lot more questions. Although in the end, we might still make the investment. What do you think your time is from first finding a play to writing a check in a bull market, in a bear market, and let's be specific on it being a venture style, riskier play. Let's say 50 mil or Val or under. How long would it take you to get comfortable to write a check? I think uh, in the bear market, 
usually it will take at least two weeks and it can be up to a month uh, for us to make a decision. I mean, that's general rule of thumb. Sometimes we do make it faster. I think in a bull market, uh, we try to do it within two weeks, sometimes within a week. Uh, but if something that's rushing us for two days, we usually do not do that. I think there's just too little time for us to do due diligence. Yeah. So I think, yeah, for bull markets, usually one to two weeks. Yep. Yeah. My next question and, was going to be, yep. do you like give in to teams that say, you know, closing in 48 hours? I mean, I, I don't know why I would want to work with that team and there's not enough time to do due diligence, but I agree with you. I think we, I don't recall us having done that. Probably we have done one or two, but uh, there, there must be some circumstances like the social proof was so strong. The use case was extremely obvious and the team was very strong. Like another all-star online situation and we are just taking a participation round where we know that the, the, the social proof is strong enough that, yeah. So, yeah, and you have all the other factors aligned that make it a less uh, investment cases that's less likely, of, uh, very unlikely to flop. So yeah, then, then we, we might do that. But I think it's very unlikely, yeah. And just switching gears, like let's say made a bunch of investments, which you have, you have a number of growing portfolio companies with varying amounts invested. You know, some could be large investments, some could be small. How do you, you know, use your time on portfolio management after you write a check? I mean, there's obviously so many ways that you can help a project, but your time is limited. And I hate to say it, but your time is worth well more than other people's time. How do you allocate your time to these fund or projects? But also, I guess, how do you let them know what you're good at so that you can effectively allocate time for them? Yeah, so I think, uh, how do we, uh, we, we usually let them know what we are good at at the beginning before we invest. And I think at this stage, our value should be quite obvious. Um, I think, if they are not aware, uh, we are one of the most active on-chain motor for most of the top DeFi protocol out there for those that we hold a sizable stake. I think a lot of time we just help to pass the the invest uh, the improvement proposal. Uh, we help to hit the quorum. Uh, yeah, I mean, at this stage, I think the DeFi protocol know uh, that we, we are doing that to help them through. Uh, because I think uh, quite a lot of time, the voting apathy is real. Like, so, if we do not vote, <laughs> it's actually quite hard to pa- quite hard to pass a quorum. Yeah, and also I think uh like like early stage liquidity provision. Uh, we are one of the very few firm that's very comfortable interacting with DeFi protocol at it right from the start and deploy like a, a like institutional size of capital to help them bootstrap it. So this is the value that we bring, and obviously to the governance and token design as well. So, so I think right now it should be fairly known what we are good at, and how do we determine the time um. So we do have a team. So uh, actually, I think this at this stage, uh, given the number of investments we made, it's not possible anymore for me to cover everything. So we do have a team of seven, including myself, to cover the stuff we invest in. And each of my team, they cover between 10 to 15 uh, protocol we invested in. So how, how do we decide the time? I think it's just really, we also, depends on the protocol, how much help they need. I think some team are pretty good at, doing their own thing and they only need it uh, when they need the help, uh, they will ask. But team, some team, they appreciate the team, the investor reaching out to, you know, say, you know, what can we do to help? So I think it depends. Some the, some team that uh, like it, we have like a bi-weekly call, monthly call with them, sync up and then have a to-do task. What can we uh, help? You know, then it's part of our to-do list. Some team, we only have a call when we need to and we need to check out what's, what's going on. Yep. Yeah, so I think it's pretty case by case basis. 
usually I think the more mature team need less help. So we we have a little bit less this kind of like an active discussion. That's awesome, Arthur. All right, cool. We went through all the, the operational stuff. Now I want to get into the fun stuff. My first question for you on this side of things is, I guess, what's the best advice you've ever gotten from crypto founder, one of your mentors, et cetera? And I guess, what do you think, in your opinion, is the best advice that you've ever given someone in crypto? Wow, uh, that's tough. Um, I think for crypto, I think my biggest advice is just to um, have the persistence to survive after you've done your homework, you made your research, and sometimes you just have to believe in something if you have done your research and you know that uh, this is the right thing. So I think, and you do not get too carried away by what is happening on the market. Uh, you need to walk a very good balance between absorbing the info the market is giving you, but not being carried away by the current emotion of the market. I like that. No, I, I totally agree. And switching gears a little bit again, my next question is on just mental health, taking breaks, taking a vacation. Are you 20 hours a day until you retire? Do you turn your phone off at 1 a.m.? Like, how do you handle disconnecting, recharging? What do you do to achieve that? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that everyone approaches it differently. Uh, for me, it's just to have a time off and uh, you just have to make yourself. I, I think people who have spent more than uh, one year in the space kind of know, find their own way how to approach this. For me, it's just that during weekends, I just tend to be a lot less hands-on. Hands like, um, I think I still look at the market, probably I check it, the price once or twice a day at most during the weekends and just scroll the Twitter, um, but just not really you know, on a working mode. And then just take a walk, you know, just go and do something else. And I think that just you need to develop a, a way to not check the price too often. I think a lot of the guys that just got, got in, they'll tell me, oh, especially in the bull market, I check the price every 10 minutes, every hour. Um, I think that's definitely not healthy. Uh, I think you just need to find a, a few times where you just don't check the price that often because it, it will not change whatever are you doing. Like Even let's say in the bull market, you can set your target price, your stop loss, whatever, and then just approach it in a more sensible manner. I mean, although I think that um, there will be some time where you're more intense, let's say, I think every, all of us remember the DeFi summer period where if you miss out for one or two days, you miss out a lot. So I think that time I, I, I was a lot more intense, but then I scaled down the intensity gradually over the time. Yeah, actually, I think, yeah. So I think you just have to find some way to, you know, be, uh, not to be attached to whatever happening in crypto all the time. Yeah. Uh, that's a, it's a really good point. And I also slow down a bit on the weekends as my team probably notices. But the, the other side of things, just on the cash basis, do you ever have a high percentage of cash in the fund? I mean, I feel like there's always something to play. There's always a place to allocate to. You, you can always go short. Like There's always a way to take a view on the market. How much cash do you ever have at a max? And how do you think about that? I think, I think so far since the fund was formed, the max cash position we have is around 20%. Theoretically, the highest we will go is probably around 60%. Uh, because I think that no matter how bearish you are, you still need to take into account that crypto, uh, the upside uh, usually significantly outweighs the downside because the upside can be like uh, like multiples, like 10 times, 20 times, but the downside, yeah, you can go to zero. So 
even you are super bearish, it still makes sense to maintain some exposure. So um, in case, you know, there are some positive uh, element that surprise the market. So I think it's probably 60% cash is highest we will go. And highest if we ever go is 20% because I think since we started investing, uh, we invested from a, from a bear market. And the bear market, you want to be 100% deployed actually. It's counterintuitive and you never know where the bottom is. But I think that when you have sufficient confidence, you just have to go a little bit, a little bit more aggressive and then, uh, yeah, stay, be quite fully deployed at the bottom and then slowly take profit and, yeah, have a higher cash position at the, at the, at the, but as the bull market goes on. So I think, um, yeah, so I think this is how we play it. But I would say myself, because I'm more of a optimist at heart, so I always uh, glass half full kind of person. So I always see a lot of positive things. So I think our cash percentage traditionally has not been that high. Yeah, so we... A lot of time we are just quite quite invested. Yep. Yeah, no, ours ours is not. There's just too much out there, too many opportunities. And I mean, following on with that question, I'd love to get your view kind of on markets, but also like at a macro and a micro level. Like I'd love to hear your take on you know where you think we're going with global markets and how that affects crypto. Um, and I'd also, if you want to take it the way of you know where we're going with Web3 and DeFi and stuff like that at a micro level, that'd also be interesting. But I'd love to kind of get your opinion on what the end state for crypto is. Like, do we actually put Wall Street out of business? Does crypto take over the world? Like, what exactly is the end state in your mind? Yeah, I I think that, again, this is a very fluid situation. Yeah, it depends on how the world evolves. It's just like, okay, it's not really the crypto, but look at COVID, right? I mean, back then, uh, I think the situation might be able to manage if all the countries took COVID a lot more seriously at the beginning, not when uh, it's too late. So I think that there's a very critical time element back then that the countries that uh, prevented it, uh, took it a lot more seriously at the beginning, managed it a lot much better. And the country that took vaccination a lot more seriously also did much better right now at the second or third wave as well. So there's obviously a lot of the, the time element and the fluid situation there. So I think for crypto, I think the end stage is really to become an alternative approach to the current way it's being set up. So let's say for the fine, for the DeFi side, it's like an alternative way of managing of your finance, uh, be it on a personal level or to the corporate or institutional level. Like it's just a, a, a different reality that uh, is being presented. Uh, whether it will succeed or not, uh, I think there is a very high chance it will, but I wouldn't say it's 100%. Yeah, so I think that this is the, alternative uh, approach that the, the our space is trying to present. How much adoption it, it ends up getting, it depends on the effort we put in. Also depends on how hard the establishment push back and how much the, the, the neutral player, how much uh, are they adopting it. Uh, so I think that, that there's a lot of factor in place. So I think right now, uh, I think our site is doing quite well in the pushing the innovation and the product uh, adoption part. I think, I think you also see quite a lot of interest from the neutral player to adopt this technology. But I think that, that the pushback is actually uh, getting quite strong. Uh, I think for the DeFi side, the most obvious one is the FATF guidance. Uh, they delay to the October, but based on the current version, it was definitely not the most friendly towards the DeFi because they basically want to put DeFi on the same bucket on a regulation as the centralized crypto company. So that will make it extremely difficult. And then on the Web3 side, it's also an alternate reality where instead of the 
all the data are being controlled by a centralized web tool company like Facebook, Google. We have Web3, like all the identity is like individually owned. I think that one is even earlier than DeFi because the, a lot of the basic pillar is not uh, ready and adopted yet. But yeah, so how we will get there depends on how much, uh, how successful the sector is in, in pushing there and how much pushback we get. What do you think happens in a situation where governments take a very aggressive stance against crypto beyond like the China ban news, the U.S. government hates the kind of stuff we've seen in the past? And do you think crypto you know, survives? Do you think this is going to happen? Because it's kind of a I think, up in the air. I, I think crypto will survive, but uh, the scale of the crypto space will probably get smaller and uh, they will grow a little bit uh slower as well. I think there will always be growth. Um, it's quite hard to have a total ban. Just like, I think that the media industry uh, fought a pretty big war against the, the torrenting space. And then, I think that in the end, uh, they, people are still using torrenting, right? I'm still using torrenting from time to time. But I think what, what interesting is that what have disrupted the torrenting industry is the fact is like some Web2 company like Netflix that did so well in their streaming content and make it like um, paying $10,000 a month is actually less of a hassle instead of going to search for some of the uh, torrent content you want to look for. So people just don't mind paying like $10, $15 a month just to subscribe. And it's just about a user convenience point of view. Uh, it's just easier to access the content on Netflix rather than trying to find a seed of the content you want and download it. Um, yeah, so uh, in that sense, so... I think that it will survive, but it will grow slower if you face a very hostile uh, pushback from the government. And actually, I think right now is a very good uh, life situation happening. You can observe um, China is actually, um, I, I mean, I'm a, Man, I'm a native Mandarin speaker. So although I'm not a Chinese uh, by uh, nationality, I think they are actually taking a pretty hostile approach to all the things that are not under their control right now. It's actually, crypto is only part of the extension. You can look at the country's approach to the Web2 founders. Um, like all the big uh, successful startup founders are all stepping down in the same six months. I think it's not a coincidence. Like they're all uh, retiring as a CEO or sometimes even as a chairman, handing over their reign to the like some other people. Like you have uh, Alibaba, you have, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, May, May Tuan uh, is listed. They also have ByteDance. Yeah, they're all like retiring as a CEO as well. And uh, they also like bit, getting a lot less public on the, on the media side because they know that the government is cracking down. And on the crypto side, it's a lot more uh, severe. Yeah, like the mining is a total ban. I think the fiat on-ramp is being significantly curtailed. So I think that the growth of the Chinese market in crypto will actually slow down from here. And then uh, with the fiat on-ramp being significantly restricted, I think you can see, can, can the growth still, still sustain? So I think it, it, we just have to observe for the next six months. That's totally fair, Arthur. And um, Arthur, I'd love to kind of close out and just ask you one final question. What do you think was your you know, biggest loss or biggest miss? And what did you learn from it that you could share with people so that it won't happen again? Yeah, I think because the fund has been only formed for around a year. So I think that it was a glad that we did not suffer any major losses at the fund yet. Um, but I think on a personal level, I think um, I think the most brutal experience I had was really on Ether. 
So I remember holding it all the way down from $800 down to $500. And I think obviously the bottom was $80, right? And actually throughout that time, um, I think Ether's fundamental was actually not that bad because despite the bear market, you still see the, con- the transaction actually was staying at the same level. It's just the price keep going down. People are still using the network. Um, but I think it's a, it's a question of uh, the the role of Ether in Ethereum, right? Like Ethereum can be used without Ether being worth a lot. I think that was a very popular like, talking point back then. Like there was a lot of uh, attack on e- Ether as a, as it's not a good store of value. I mean, all the ICOs are dumping it. Um, so I think that was pretty painful. I think that you just have to, uh, the, the, the experience is uh, beside the fundamental. You also have to take into account what the market is uh, feedbacking to you and the, some of the dynamic. I think at that point of time, you just have a huge selling pressure. And the the, the asset at that point of time, uh, the, the market cap ETH is also quite big at the level that the, the fundamental wasn't strong enough to support it at, a, let's say, $800 price level yet. I think at that point of time, the fundamental can probably support it uh, at the two to three hundred dollar level, which is where it stabilized after bouncing it from eighty, uh, it spent a lot of time below three hundred. It's basically below between two hundred to three hundred level. It was bouncing there for most of twenty nineteen. So I think it was a painful experience where, but the fundamental was actually better. But you also need to look at the other dynamic and where where can your fundamentals support the price level. So I think the the answer is at that point of time, uh, the level it can support is two to three hundred level, two to three hundred. And I think when it comes to the biggest miss, um, I would have to say is uh, probably Luna. So I think that it's actually interesting. And Luna is something that we we actually invested in. Um, but I think we lost a bit of patience with the progress because I think that uh, uh, the although the Chai payment app has been doing well, I think that there, there wasn't enough adoption in the crypto space. And I think that uh, given the market condition, like you need some crypto adoption for for the for the project to do well, but actually the founder did recognize that and uh, managed to, uh, div, you know, penetrate the crypto space very well in the end with the anchor protocol and mirror protocol. But it's just something that uh, we were focusing too much on the Ethereum ecosystem, and uh, just a little bit dismissive on the other ecosystem. So I think that was a was a pretty big miss for us, and to some extension the BSC ecosystem as well. I think, um, I think the the number of good investment you can find is not much, but I think, like for example, Pancake Swap. I think, like it or not, there is there is a lot of user and yeah, the, the, pro, the product market fit is is proven. So I think this is some yeah, these these two are probably the biggest miss for us. No, Arthur, those are uh, thank you for being candid. Those are great examples of on the liquid side understanding the fundamentals, on the VC side um, digging in and understanding the plays. My last question for you, just to close out, to play devil's advocate a bit, you opened with you know you wouldn't want to invest in the layer ones. It's not the circle of confidence, but the misses you shared were kind of on the L1 side, but where do you, I guess, draw the line going forward? Like if a new L1 pops up, will you dive in? If DeFi happens on Terra, you know, will you use your DeFi experience on ETH to dive in? Like, how do you readjust your circle of confidence to include the things that I guess you missed in the past? I think it's just a constant learning process. Yeah. Um, like, um, because this makes this space uh, move very quickly. So obviously by subscribing to... You guys, Delphi Digital, we are, you know, uh, a, a user as well, like all the other research services and talking to people and just observing the traction because 
if a layer one is, is taking off, you usually can see from the user metric. I think Polygon is a perfect example. I think before Polygon achieved this level of success, you actually, most people wasn't talking about, actually you can see the user number was just growing at an exponential pace during the first two weeks of May. And then it's just not slowing down at all. And then you can see the project deploying. So I think, yeah, you just have to adjust to the new reality that the market is telling you. And I think the, the really good thing and the advantage of crypto investor compared to a lot of other industries a lot of time, if you're willing to pay the attention, the data is there for you to decipher and uh, analyze it. And the data is public and free, actually. You just need to find the right tool to, to analyze them. So I think this actually gives crypto investors a lot of advantages. Advantage, yeah. Arthur, I really appreciate you being the first guest on our five-part VC series. Your success at Defiance has been incredible to watch. Um, for those that know how much damage you've done, uh, I mean, it's been incredible. And, and I appreciate our chats and learning so much from you. So really appreciate you coming on. Uh, for those who are looking to follow Arthur, I'll share all of his links in the show notes. If you're not following him, you should be. Um, Arthur, thanks again so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's a, it's a pleasure. Before we go, we want to again thank our sponsor for this episode, Kava. With a proven track record of delivering products safely, the Kava platform is DeFi's most trusted, scalable, and secure institutional-grade cross-chain engine. In addition to the protocols Kava and Hard, the Kava platform is launching Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Try for yourself or learn more today by visiting kava.io. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.